our average age is decreasing, which I love to see because we have younger people entering the market. And I think your laugh maybe was, you know, we had a lot of Dogecoin and Bitcoin. That's and, exactly what you my laugh was. <laughs> did you see Mr. Beast just shredded a Lamborghini? I did, yeah. That guy's something else. <laughs> did you sell that Lambo? What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Jason Putnam is co-founder and managing partner of Tactical Fleet, Texas's largest exotic used car dealer. In this conversation, we discussed the secrets to selling exotic cars, the fast rise of crypto money buyers, selling his company to a public company called Sonic Automotive, how much money he makes selling exotic cars, the cars he refuses to sell his own friends, and what car he personally drives. Plus, some fun, or should I say authentic moments throughout this episode. I think you'll absolutely love it. All right, let's get into the show. All right, we got Jason Putnam on the pod. Jason, how's it going? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Jason, as if the used car business is not tough enough, you decide to go exotic. Yeah. I don't know how you do it, but we're going to find out today. Um... You know, can you start just giving us your background, your story? How'd you get to this point? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, right out of college, I graduated in 09. Thought I was going to go to Wall Street and, you know, get into VC or be an analyst and not the right timing for that, obviously. Um, always loved to cook cars. So I moved to Dallas uh, to work for a startup. Long story short, that took too long. So I started selling Porsches. Um, turned out I was halfway decent at it. I left Dallas. Uh, and what do you mean by that? Like, what was the startup that you went to? And like, how do you just randomly wake up one day and you start selling Porsches? How does that work? Yeah, fair. Uh, I guess I skipped over some details. <laughs> uh, it was a startup in the healthcare space. They were doing like an inpatient monitoring system. And, you know, 09, 8, 9, 10 was just not the right time to raise capital. So yep. kind of never really got off the ground. And so I spun my wheels for a few months and... Uh, a friend of the family was like, you know, you've always loved cars. You should, you should try to sell cars. And I was like, Ugh, I don't want to be a, you know, car salesman. I don't know about all that. Um, but I was afforded the opportunity to start selling Porsches at Park Place. And um, yeah. Park Place is, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, a massive dealer group in the South in Texas. Yeah. So started at Porsche there um, in sales, became the new car manager after a couple of years. And then I actually left Dallas and went to Nashville to run a portfolio of car dealerships. Um, so I was the the variable officer, the sales director there. Um, he had 12 brands in six states. It was, yeah, very interesting. So I went from Porsche to like Ford, Chevy, Kia, Subaru, um, learned that side of the business. And then a friend of mine, Chris Barta, who became my business partner, he and I started in the same sales training class in 2009 at Park Place. He's like, hey, come back to Dallas, come back to Dallas, let's start our own dealership. And at that time, we had a client who has a multinational company with a couple thousand vehicles that didn't have any fleet management in-house. So that's where the fleet part of our name came from. Um, he needed somebody to come in and, and really manage his fleet. Long story short, after about a year of putting that project together, uh, Fourth and Cole, they bailed. And so Chris and I looked at each other and we're like, let's just do what we do best. Um, let's sell sports cars. So... We called uh, four or five clients, took a couple meetings, and uh, got one client to say yes. Gave us five hundred grand and said, "If you can, you know, find a space and get going, go for it." Oh, so you you called up your prior clients and pretty much asked them to invest? Was that like the? Yeah, we wow. needed to get rolling, right? Um, 
So he so, gives you 500K. What do you do with that 500K? Um, somehow we got a lease on a 30,000 square foot warehouse. Um, you know, our financials were literally a checking account that was three days old that had 500 grand in it, but it worked. And um, we spent $474,000 rehabbing the warehouse. And then at the same time- Holy shit. Yeah. Did you guys spend some money? Did you make a sale by this point? Was this all pre, pre-revenue? It was kind of, you know, we got the uh, lease in August of 2018, started selling cars kind of um, in October using the same capital. And then by January of 19, we went live. Uh, but at that time, we were working with about a million dollars of working capital. So not a lot, especially in the luxury wow. space. I mean, yeah. I think of everyone in the used car space that I know that started like you from, you know, from just, you know, nothing really. Um, everyone that I know took a very lean approach. You took a very aggressive approach, which clearly, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it worked out for you. Um, yeah. that, I mean, that, that's risky. That's ballsy. Good for you. We, we knew, especially in Dallas, the type of clients that we wanted to attract. We had to make what was a 1980s tilt wall kind of crappy, dumpy warehouse nice. So we stripped it, you know, down to the studs and put in exposed ductwork and all the walls were white. We just kind of wanted it to be an art gallery for cars. Um, it was still pretty quaint, but we knew that we had to try to be different um, and, and attract that client that is used to, you know, marble countertops and state-of-the-art facilities and all that kind of stuff. So how yeah. do you attract that client? Like when you, so you said you're launching a dealership and especially an exotic dealership. Right. Sure. Like I said, it's already hard enough to sell used cars, um, you know, at scale and do it well, but then exotic is like a whole nother level. How, how do you even attract that client? Like what, what do you do on day one? How do you market that? You know, it's super interesting. I had been out of the space with respect to selling cars day to day to clients for four or five years. Um, Chris, my business partner was one of the top Bentley role salesmen in the country. He was also at Park Place and he left there to immediately start, um, tactical fleet. And, and we kind of thought, we would be able, or we didn't kind of, we really thought we'd be able to to bank on his book of business and selling cars for 10 years. and mm, having Relationships, relationships. Yeah, exactly. And that was our whole focus, right? The whole auto industry had become so transactional. Nothing against like a Carvana or any of those models, but the, the human element had been kind of removed in our opinion. And so what we wanted to do is bring back kind of the relationship style selling, if you will, where we don't want to sell you one car. We want to sell you all your cars. And, you know, specifically him, he had been hamstring to selling Bentley or Rolls product, a little bit of McLaren. And now he said, okay, we've got a clean slate. We can sell whatever we want. Um, But what was super interesting is that book of business didn't really help us. It was all new people. So our whole goal was to set up a business that was a little bit more transparent and a lot more um, user friendly. So if you walked in our store and you liked a car, you could be in it out in 20 minutes. Paperwork was super fast. We weren't pushing product. Um, Very fair. Dude, I have so many questions. You're killing me right now. (laughs) Yes. All right. right, Um, So wait, like 50 million questions to go, but we'll start with one. Okay. Okay. How, so if, if relationship based was not the way you got your first customers, how did you get your first customers? um, We took a really kind of, I would say aggressive approach on advertising on AutoTrader. Um, at that time, not to get into the minutia, there was a kind of an underutilized portion of their advertising product called alphas. And what we did was basically an alpha says for a given market, any search for McLaren in El Paso, we would be the first ad to pop up. So instead of buying just at our DMS or our, our local area for Dallas, 
we bought alphas in Los Angeles, Atlanta, New York, Chicago, Charlotte, Miami. <laughs> so what we were trying to do is just get our name out there. And then we didn't do any traditional advertising with respect to, you know, print ads or billboards or. So no brand advertising, strictly performance marketing. Performance marketing. And then we, we tried to be early and aggressive on Instagram. Um, in How did that work of, out for you? Really well. I, I, we have a good, good following. It's not a crazy number. But you know, fifty, sixty thousand. Um, oh, wait, wait, wait! We should keep that in the podcast. I hear, <laughs> I hear someone, I hear someone revving the engine behind you. I love that. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> a Pista. Uh, Simon, what is that, Jason? What car is that? Twenty twenty Ferrari Pista Aperta or convertible. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I love it. So you mentioned Instagram. Did that work for you when it came? So, and on on a quick tangent, like, what's your average sales price for a car? Uh, average sales price intentionally we've been marching down over the last six to 12 months to kind of uh, I guess be respectful of the current economic times and try to stay in front of it so we used to be this time last year about 275,000 we hover around 240 to 250 right now okay and all right so going back to what you were saying so auto trader Instagram sure. um, so so these customers like were they strictly from auto trader also Instagram um, really Instagram, what we found is, was great for brand awareness. And in the first year to two years, that was our main focus was just getting our name out there. Um, especially in this space, you know, there's a lot of skepticism and kind of going back to what I talked about, about a book of business, despite transacting with clients and building relationships for over a decade for Chris and even myself, there was a little bit of skepticism, you know, are these guys going to make it? What are they doing? Cause we were the, the new kid on the block. Um, from a dealership perspective. So Instagram was great for brand building. And what's super interesting, we don't really sell any cars on Instagram, but a lot of our higher net worth clients, um, you know, who are generally male, let's say 40 to 60 years old that are on Instagram, they like the attention. They like the kids get excited about the cars. I don't know if it's an ego play or just the fact that you can feel cool by watching, you know, kind of our stories and our cars. So Instagram has been a good brand builder for us, I guess. That's mm-hmm. it. Very interesting. So going back to going back to your story, right? You were mentioning your your kind of star, your your rise. Can you walk us through to present day? I know I know you've gone through a lot uh through these last couple of years. Sure. Um so go ahead. Yeah, I mean it was um it was a really fun time to start. I think we had no we had no idea that the market was going to do what it was going to do, right? We saw this meteoric rise in pre-owned values, which was great and and really advantageous for our business. Spinning forward, you know, we went from one location, we added a second in uh, the latter part of 2021, and then we added a third in the beginning of 2022. So really, really explosive growth. We ran all three stores with less than 30 people, and that includes our Dallas location, where five of those people are just doing PPF and, and vinyl installation. So really, what's PPF? Yeah, sorry, pay protection film. So it's the, mm-hmm. the clear plastic that you put on the front of cars, yep. uh, just to protect from rock chips. So explosive growth in a very short period of time during kind of unprecedented, you know, as you know, times in the used car market where you were buying a car and then two weeks later it was worth more than you paid for it wholesale, which is just unusual, right? Mm-hmm. And then we saw what I think was a, a pretty major correction this time last year um, when the market really pulled back. And so now I think we're in more normalized times with respect to values, meaning, you know, cars are depreciating as they should. Mm-hmm. So Before we jump into that, though, you're a humble guy, but you sold to Sonic Automotive, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. T- um, tell me about that. I mean, how did this come about? When did this happen? How much are you like, you know, 
sailing off on a yacht right now or are you, you know, no, I'm, off I'm to, still, the, to, to the Cayman Islands? I mean, what's the deal over here? <laughs> um, you know, we had a good friend that came through and had been in the automotive space and had sold to Sarek and wanted to acquire us. He just liked our business model and what we were doing. And we couldn't come to terms there. And he had said, hey, I'm going to bring... I'm going to bring a good friend of mine by. His name's Jeff Dyke. And I'm like, Jeff Dyke, Jeff Dyke. Why does that sound familiar? Quick Google, president of Sonic. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, walked through the space. In about 20 minutes, he asked us a bunch of questions. And then he looked at our mutual friend and said, are you buying them? Are we buying them? Let's get this done. Uh, and about, about 10, 12 weeks later, we had a deal. And, you know, full transparency, we were running really, really hard with very limited working capital. So, on any given month, selling seven to eight million dollars worth of cars with four million of working capital. So we were doing some some consignment, but really we're mm -hmm. outrunning our cash. And yeah. so Sonic brought and afforded us, um, you know, a, a big open checkbook, uh, which is why we you know grew to three locations this time last year, June July. We had a hundred million dollars worth of inventory on the ground. Um, so really allowed us to grow and do what would have hopefully happened for Chris and I organically in 10 years we did in you know a year and a half or two mm -hmm. what was the, what was the price tag they paid for you guys <laughs> I, I can't say but I appreciate you asking oh it's not public info correct I figured public company and what year did this happen uh we sold at the end of 2020 so November of 2020 oh wow good timing okay yep. and can you share like what were you doing what was your like net income at the time can you share that stuff yeah, so it's interesting. As I mentioned, we were outrunning our capital. Um, in the first year in 2019, we did 34 million in sales. We doubled mm -hmm. the next year and did just short of 70. And then in 2020, we were at like 130, 140 um, in terms of revenue. We were, I would say, kind of break even ish pre acquisition um, based on our cost of capital. We didn't have the credit facilities to have inexpensive money to buy at inventory. Um, so I think they were buying kind of us and the story and the opportunity and the upside. Got it. And so let's, I want to get into some, some financial, cause I'm really curious here. What do you typically make? Like what's your average gross profit per unit on a luxury, an exotic car? Sure. Um, you know, we always kind of shoot for 10%. Um, so we do it on more of a percentage basis. It, it really varies. You know, you know, sometimes it's 2%, sometimes it's 12, uh, and a lot of that has to do with our philosophy on reconditioning is a little bit different. So we don't acquire mm -hmm. any inventory from auctions. Um, it's oh, all that's interesting. I was going to ask you that question too. Where do you get your inventory? Yeah. Uh, tons of repeat business. We very early on, based on providing what I think are really fair trade values, kind of asserted ourselves as the dealership that not necessarily will overpay, but will give top dollar for trade-ins or just to sell cars outright. You know, a lot of and you see it more now with the compression of the market, a lot of dealers will say, well, I'm not going to buy your car unless you buy something from me. And I go, you know, I, I would love to have your inventory. If you buy something from us, great. But, mm -hmm. you know, a, a 2016 Targo with 10,000 miles, sure, I'll take it. So yeah, working our relationships and networks, um, being kind of proactive and approaching dealers, you know, Mercedes dealers that, that get a Ferrari on trade or something like that. Uh, I, I would like to think our name's on the short list, so. Um, that's where we, so sort. all your inventory you're saying is like relationship-based trade-ins, other dealers, like nothing from auction. Correct. Wow. Yeah. Do you ever uh, buy anything at auction ever? Anything? You know, I've used ACV a little bit, which is more of a dealer to dealer auction, kind of similar to an OBE. Um, but no, I've, I've never bought anything in Mannheim for this, for this business. Mm -hmm. 
so uh, like your reconditioning, right? You know, yeah. average, a, a used car dealer may spend $1,000 on reconditioning a car, uh, sure. you know, at a shop, in, you know, non-certified techs, or maybe outsource it. How do you do that? I mean, you're dealing with serious, I mean, liabilities here. These are expensive cars. You can't afford to make mistakes. You know, early on, we thought about potentially bringing service in-house. It's a great revenue driver, and it's a good value add for our clients. We also recognize that when people go in for service, they're not happy, right? Because they're spending money on their car. Tires are not fun. Sure. So we wanted to focus on the the kind of fun side of the business, which is the excitement That's of smart. the car. Yeah. On top of that, with the breadth of brands we carry, I mean, our core brands are, in no particular order, Porsche, Ferrari, Lambo, Rolls, Bentley, Aston, and then we, we do a little bit of McLaren. We would have had to have, you know, 10, 12 tags just to cover our brands. So we've got great working relationships with the OEMs. We've also got some wonderful Highline independent um, service facilities here in Dallas that we utilize. And, and our philosophy is, especially because we sell cars all over the country, we don't want to sell a car with a known issue or sell you a car, ship it to New York, and it needs tires or it's missing a key. So I would say we probably over-recondition our cars within reason. You know, I would say our average recon is closer to five grand a car. If a car has one key, it's getting... Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, if I saw a five grand recon ticket on a car, I, d- I don't know what would happen to that car. I mean, that thing is going back to auction or something. And, and that's half of what you spend on a McLaren, which is if you look at my inventory, I only have a couple. I, average ticket for a McLaren is about 10 grand, even a short mile car. So, wow. Yeah. But anyway, we try to make our cars super nice so that we can send them anywhere side of the Makes sense. Sleep well at night. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk more about you mentioned earlier, just like the ramp up, the ramp down, $100 million in inventory. Is that still what you have today? No, I think, you know, candidly, I anticipated um, higher demand for our Beverly Hills location. And then we moved into a new facility here in Dallas, you kind of see behind me um, mm-hmm. a year ago, June. And that really coincided with the market kind of taking a downturn and, and prices correcting. So to answer your question, no, uh, we're seeing about $40 million worth of cars on the ground right now uh, between our, our Charlotte and our Dallas location. How have you managed this correction? 2022 was a brutal year for exotic car values. You know, h- how did you manage through that? Do you take big losses? You know, sure. We historically haven't really uh, realized many losses. In, in fact, we don't only not buy cars at the auction, but we typically don't dispose at the auction either. We try to sell out of whatever we have. Um, you know, but I'd be remiss to say, yeah, we did, we took some hits for sure. Mm-hmm. And, but learned a lot. Um, we were rolling in a little heavy at the wrong time. And so we moved quickly, um, to kind of cut back our inventory and sell through some aged units. Uh, but it, it wasn't fun. The first half of 22 was actually great, super profitable. The second half, um, definitely took, took some loans on, on some cars. How, how long do you hold a car in inventory? Great question. So um, we manage uh, and typically try to do a 90-day turn uh, depending on make, model, and and really we kind of get granular. We go down to the trim level mm-hmm. to try to get the right product mix. You know, I, I'd like to think we're relatively good at what we do, but at the end of the day, we are trying to acquire inventory and guess what the consumer is going to want. And so we, we don't always get it right, um, but more often than not, we do. So we try to manage to about a 90-day turn. 90-day turn. Yeah, which makes sense. I mean, exotic car, it's, you know, more expensive. And, you know, average dealers, let's just say 60-day or 50-day. 
Right. So go so go back to gross profit per unit. You mentioned ten percent. How is that broken down though? Are you looking? Are you aiming targeting to make ten percent on the car? Are you selling like warranties? You know, are vehicle service contracts, insurance products? How does that work? Yeah. So out of the gate, we shied away from a lot of those products because we were a two man band uh, with a with a detailer and, and a porter. So I guess there's four of us. And what we found the veracity with which the, our clients were trading cars. We were going to spend more time trying to cancel warranties and get their money back. We wanted to remove any of the quote unquote heat cases that we could. So we we didn't have a lot of product offerings. And then, you know, I'll tell you, it was super eye opening. And I, I probably should have been more attuned to this, having run a big dealer group and then also being part of a really big dealer group. All the banks are courting you and they want your business. All of a sudden, you go out and start your own dealership. Well, you've only been in you know, business for six months. You don't know what you're you nobody. Yeah, yeah, you're so nobody. We we quickly became Woodside Credits, uh, you know, one of their biggest fans because that was one of our only resources. So with that, we really didn't have a lot of offerings in terms of back-end product. And that's part of the reason we brought up a wrap or a PPF department in-house. That was kind of our back-end product. Um, and then the the rate at which our clients were trading cars, because we had access to all these different brands, was so fast. Um there wasn't really a need to sell product. Now that's pivoted a little bit. Um, we do have a wheel and tire and extended warranty options now, but we is don't it? sell anything that we don't, you know, firmly stand behind. The last thing you want is a client upset because the six thousand dollar warranty you sold them doesn't cover something. Yeah. Well, we've been really picky and kind of slow to enter that space. And our finance penetration is, you know, 35 percent. So it's always a focus, but we deal with just a ton of cash. And and typically your cash buyer is less apt to buy an extended warranty or a road hazard product. Oh, really? Yeah. Or, well, why though? Like, do, are they just expecting that if they have an issue with their, you know, $300,000 card that the manufacturer will take care of it? Or what's, what's the, what's the plan? I think that's part of it. I also think in this space, you know, we're not selling people. They're, they're generally their daily drivers, uh, with the exception of maybe some G wagons and more mass market vehicles that we carry. It's, it's a Sunday driver. It's, it's, cra- it's crazy to hear you say G wagon and mass market in the same sense. Because any any normal person would be like, that's, you know, on the exotic side. And for you, it's probably like the, you know, the Nissan Altima, the bread and butter. You know, we've sold a ton of them, I think, um, 70, 80 G-Wagons so far this year. So that's just a... How many? 70 or 80, something in wow. one there. Yeah. Did you see my... Did, I, I posted about um, this, like, baby G-Wagon that they want to come out with. Did you see that? Yeah, we were laughing about it. Um, I, what, I, what's the deal with that? Is that going to happen? Are they going to come out with, like, a mini G-Wagon? I think so. Yeah, I don't remember which executive of Mercedes was kind of on the record and said, you're going to see a, what do you call it, a sister or brother G-Wagon or something. <laughs> she will crush it. I mean, they're awesome cars. We've I, I never would have anticipated, you know, we started was right when the new G-Wagon was about to come out that, that they'd be going for over MSRP. Because back in the day, you could get a good discount on a G-Wagon. They're too expensive, but here we are. Yeah. Tell me more about the G wagon. I mean, did you did you follow the, the G wagon? You know, madness last year. Um, you know, they were selling at auction for like two hundred eighty thousand. Suddenly, you know, a couple months later, like two hundred twenty thousand. I mean, do you remember that madness? Of course, yeah. I always try to be um, kind of behind the curve on that, which is going to sound odd. But when there's a big craze on a car, they're bringing huge numbers over MSRP. I like to wait um, six, eight weeks, even a couple months, just to see where the dust is going to settle. Yeah. Uh, just because it always comes back, right? The Hummers, the G-Wagons, um, Porsches are still kind of bringing crazy money, Ferraris, of course. But, you know, I anecdotally, I had a guy, uh, one of our, our top salesmen that was really psyched. He 
was able to get a Kia Telluride sticker for his wife. And, and I just remember thinking, he's like, man, they're selling for 10 over, but I got a Kia sticker. I was like, cool, this has to correct, right? So yes, we did play in the G-Wagon space, but I don't think we were as aggressive as some dealers just because I couldn't rationalize $100,000 over a non-limited edition SUV. So yeah, pretty interesting. What is what is your best selling car right now? There has to be some model or some make or something, right? Yeah, um, I guess we sell a ton of 911s. That's a core product for us. We do sell a Porsches. ton of Uh but we do really well f- with Ferrari. Uh, a ton of 488s, Californios, Portofinos. So any of those are kind of in contention and comparable volume numbers. So if if you identify a trend, what do you do to source that vehicle? Definitely put feelers out. Um, in the last year, I added uh, a guy to my team named Colin, who's been in the, the highlight space, kind of as a broker for over a decade. And you know, it's it's sometimes pretty old school. We troll Auto Trader, we call clients, um, or you know, we we keep a really kind of a robust CRM or database of our current clients, and we'll call people that we know have a certain car and try to trade about something else. It seems like you're you're such a bespoke service. Like how do how do you scale that when you think about you know you mentioned three stores sure. and I understand that you know one of them you said you're closing now or closed to so walk yep. me through that I'd like to say we're still figuring out the scaling process we opened um, Charlotte at the latter part of 2021 um, that's where corporate offices for Sonic that store has been great it's a little smaller footprint for us um, it's about twenty thousand square feet mm-hmm. um, one kind of key salesperson there and then a support staff built around him of detailers and porters. Um, we had the opportunity to take over an existing space in Beverly Hills across from the Audi store. It was the old Audi Beverly Hills service center. Um, that was a legacy lease from Beverly Hills BMW from 20, 25 years ago. And really thought that that would be kind of the, the perfect spot for us, right? The heart of Beverly Hills selling sports cars. Um, and you know, candidly, that, that store underperformed. It just didn't do what we thought it was going to do. Um, on top of that, the, the Beverly Hills BMW store decided they needed more space. So after about a year, it was just a good opportunity to say we tried it and exit. Um, but scaling has been interesting. Uh, I think we, you know, in, in hindsight, um, didn't get enough credit to having kind of a, an individual in market that really has a book of business and is a mover. Um, like Chris, I've mentioned previously that that didn't help us out of the gate. It was really weird, kind of around that two-year mark. It's like, okay, these guys are sticking around. And then all the old clients kind of came back into the fold. Um, so scaling, I think it's important at this level of the business to have somebody in market who really is established and, and knows people and can kind of lean on previous sales and client history to, to try to boot product. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Now, and I would add on to that, like, is there... Is there something to be said for you to have this like one massive auto mall, like, you know, thousand cars where you're attracting people from all over the country, uh, as opposed to kind of, sure. you know, littering these locations throughout the country and all these different places? Like, what do you think about that? I think it's really interesting. You know, we purpose built a facility here in Dallas that we moved into about a year ago that's 100,000 square feet. Um, so we have under air conditioning and heat, it's fully climate controlled, the ability to fill a couple hundred cars which at this price point is, you know, a pretty expansive inventory. Um, I like the idea of having, you know, our Charlotte location. It's a great jump off to the East Coast. Uh-huh. What's really interesting 
is that you would say kind of consolidating everything here in Dallas, which is like the bottom of the spile belt would be the smart thing to do. But, you know, the, the car pieces is being what it is. I could have a car age on me here for 60, 65 days. I'll move it to Charlotte. And, you know, it happened last week. We sold the car while it was in transit. And the only thing that changed was ugh, into our Charlotte inventory. Oh, wow. The guy in Florida that bought it, it popped up at his search radius for auto trader. It's like, so there, there is some, I think, huge benefits to having a room yeah. in a different location. That's interesting. I, I would have thought buying at these price points, you know, people would not really discriminate location-wise, but it, I guess it kind of makes sense. At the end of the day, it's near you, you know, it's just more accessible. Well, and what's crazy, I mean, you're on the business, right? So you understand that shipping cars is something we do every day. You'd be amazed at how many people, especially at this price point, don't know that we can ship a car from Dallas to Florida for 1500 bucks. It's not the price. Mm -hmm. It's like the lack of understanding that these cars move. Um, it's really interesting. I, I, yeah. You know, like, who is your like average customer? Like what's the, what's the profile here? Like, you know, how much money do they earn annually? Like how old are they? Tell me about that. You know, I think that's shifted in the last few years. Historically, our our average client was, <laughs> you know, 30 and 60, maybe half a million plus in income. But our average age is, is decreasing, which I love to see because we have younger people entering the market. Um, and I think your laugh maybe was, you know, we had a lot of Dogecoin and Bitcoin. That's exactly and, what my laugh was. I was like the crypto <laughs> money, the crypto money, baby. <laughs> the crypto money and like the live streaming video gamer money is really interesting. Um, we've got several young clients that are video game programmers, live stream and, and do Twitch and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's different. Yeah. Did you see Mr. Did you see Mr. Beast just shredded a Lamborghini? I did. Yeah. That guy's something else. I think he pulled out of a million last year. So he, he's probably Yeah, okay. he's fine. <laughs> did you sell that Lambo? I did not. Uh, we got to get you on there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Now, what about online buying, right? Like you mentioned that you moved it to Charlotte, but are people buying, like, you know, eBay Motors, like been around since like 2000, right? Buying cars yeah. online. Like, do you sell a lot online, like remotely sight unseen? You know, it's interesting. Um, looking back to when we had three stores, the the percentage of our kind of online sight unseen sales was very different. Is it? So Texas at the Dallas location, over half of our business is local. When I say local, call it Texas proper. Um, the balance of that, um, sometimes it gets even as high as maybe 60, 70%. The rest of them leave the state. So we ship to both coasts out of the country. But then you look at our Charlotte store and maybe 25, 30% of the sales stay local. And then the rest are going out of state, Florida, and then up the Eastern seaboard. Um, so it really depends on which store you're looking at, but we do a ton of online side unseen sales. You know, historically people would fly in and they'd want to see and touch it. Um, I'd like to think we have a good enough reputation now that people trust the process and our product. Um, so more often than not, people don't fly in or come see the car. We just put it on a truck and drop it off to their house. Yeah, that's impressive. You build quite a reputation. What's the most expensive car you've sold sight unseen? Probably a Senna, you know, somewhere around that million dollar price point range. Mm -hmm. We auctioned off an F50 at Sotheby's last year, which technically the buyer wasn't present, right? He bought it sight unseen. Oh, so you do auctions as well? Well, we tried one. I found a um, a really short mile uh, F50, had uh, seven or 800 miles on it that we auctioned off at Miami. So that that was kind of a something we just would try. That that car was, was bought and brought a little over $5 million, So that was a big win. That, yeah, that's interesting. Now that I think about it, you know, once you, I'm going to just take a wild guess here, but once you probably eclipse like the maybe three or four hundred thousand dollar range, 
does you know does price discovery become more of a challenge like do you have to do more of these auctions types i'm not like we all know the price of like you know a g63 a 2022 g wagon that's that's pretty easy but you know 400,000 yeah. plus like does that become more challenging uh it does because in a certain respect what's a you know 2019 phantom worth yeah there's four of them so i have to look at the market and be competitive but also take a little bit of an educated guess on what that car is worth and what it's going to bring so what's the toughest what's the toughest car right now to get like the toughest exotic car and the most in demand but also the toughest what are you seeing you know new ferraris are always really tough um that new porsche product gt3 rs's are bringing what my opinion is kind of crazy buddy to 250 over msrp uh those are obviously always going to be tough to get outside of that um you still see g wagons being a bringing a bit of a premium, some of the new Lamborghini product, but I'd say the hot hand right now is, is Porsche and Ferrari. But are you feeling any of the impacts of interest rates? Like, is it impacting your business in any way here? What's super counterintuitive, and I'd say arguably a little frustrating, is that with the rise of interest rates, our finance penetration has actually gone up. So despite money being more expensive, I think people that are moving into some of this type of product are using a bit more leverage. And are more traditional cash buyers are, are kind of sitting on the sidelines and waiting. So they're not not buying, but the guy that would buy four or five cars a year is just going, all right, let me watch. Um, so it, it's so, interesting. So I, who's I this make- buyer? Who's the buyer that interest rates have gone up like, you know, I don't know, five, 6%, whatever, and is now using more leverage to buy an exotic car? Who is this person? Uh, a lot of people that are, are pretty affluent and have just, you know, kind of had their ass handed to them with the stock market or going, screw it, I'll buy a Ferrari and it cost me 8% a year. I don't care. I'm seeing some of that. Um, That's crazy. Some stretch. I feel like it's a, yeah. I feel like it's so dumb. Like put that money into some treasuries or just pay cash at that point. I mean, why pay the 8% or whatever they're paying? I mean, what are they paying? What are the rates right now on these cars? Uh, tier one credit, you're somewhere in the upper sixes to mid eights. Wow. Uh, which, yeah. which, it's crazy. I, historically, it's really not, but you know, the last 10 years, money's been free. Yeah. So it's just changing perspective and the way you think about it. It's been really interesting to watch in kind of the post COVID era. A lot of clients um, are saying, you know, I, I can't drive a stock, right? So that's not very fun, but I could drive a Ferrari. And if I lose a little bit of money, yeah. I don't care. Um, what you also have, which is really kind of a unique anomaly, is people that are needing the exotic space and for a short period of time or buying cars and then selling them and making money. Now, when, you know, things come home to roost and pre-owned prices are, are leveling or becoming more normalized, they don't understand that it cost them 50 grand to own that Aston Martin. And it's like, well, yeah, that's, that's how this works. So it's been pretty interesting. Do you, have you had to bail anyone out? Like if, if people have, have you dealt with some people here that are taking baths in these cars? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, Nothing crazy. I'd like to think we didn't overprice out of the gate, right? We never are the most expensive car on the market, but definitely some people that that also bought cars at other dealerships and way overpaid that are that are upside down. We hadn't seen negative equity in the last, I'd say, twenty four months, and you're starting to see the people that paid two eighty for that G wagon come back to trade a year later, and it's worth one eighty. Uh, it's it's a bit of a problem. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Or what are you, what are you telling them? Like, are people just trying to get out of these cars? Whether you, I'm not saying you sold it, but generally speaking, like, are you, are you finding that lots of people are in these situations though? Um, not so much with the, the negative equity. We see a little bit of that, but more so people that bought the toy and now they need the cash for whatever reason. Um, so they're, they're leaving the market for a little while. 
Um, we get a lot of people that early trade their cars here because in Texas we could kind of hold a tax credit yeah. and apply it for future use. Um, so we are seeing people shedding their toys, right? The third and fourth cars, <laughs> they're, they're wanting to sell. So you ask where we're getting our inventory, the phone's ringing with a lot of people that are just kind of shedding some toys right now. That, that makes sense. What, what would you say right now is like, is, is there, could you even say this, but like, what's the best exotic car deal in the market right now? Is there such thing? You know, I guess deal is all relative, right? Or maybe like, what's the most oversupplied, like something like that, like where you could truly have the most pricing power as a consumer or, you know, negotiation leverage, say. I think it's all relative because unfortunately the best quote unquote deal means there's a lack of demand in the, in the space, right? So there's cars you could get a huge discount on, but that's because I like, think they're going to keep falling. Yeah. Uh, and like, what are those McLaren's cars? Have, uh, McLaren's have corrected, um, you know, but to that end, a deal is all relative because they're just mm -hmm. so maintenance. They're tough to own. Yeah. Um, and it's tough. I always think Porsche is a great value for what they do. You know, a Turbo S is a now a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar car, but it hangs with stuff in the three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollar price point range. So, value I guess is relevant, yeah, yeah, right? Because yeah. it's still expensive. Um, but a lot of cars are. Are there any? Are there any exotic cars that you just recommend staying away from completely? Like this is just junk. Don't touch it. I always say I won't sell a friend of mine a McLaren. Oh, he just won't do it. <laughs> And that's more so because I think that's really a, a race car company that's trying to make consumer cars and they just haven't quite got it right yet. I think the product's good, but it's not something you'd want to own out of warranty. So that, yeah. that's yeah. not, not a luxury car by any stretch of imagination, but remember the, remember that story from like a couple of years or I don't know, five years ago, whatever about the Maseratis, like the, the, the pedals that were breaking. Remember that? Oh Yeah. Uh, Ghibli's like motors falling out. Oh my God, dude. Yeah. I, I, uh, I guess Maserati wasn't even on my mind, but yeah, that, that's a brand we, we shy far away from. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I won't forget that. I started looking at that car very differently since that day. Um, I guess the magic question, what do, what do you drive? It's a great question. I get that question a lot. So yeah, in and out of cars every you know day or every other day, I try to make sure, especially if the car has a little bit of mileage. That's my response as well. Yes. Um, but I, you know, personally probably own the most just Porsches. Porsches. Five 11s. They just hold their value. People love them. And, uh, it yeah. seems like it's like a timeless brand. Like, you know, it's also what I cut my teeth on. So I daily drove a nine. I've really daily driven a nine eleven for the last 15 years on and off. So it's just a car I really like. All right. So I want to move on. I want to move on to some macro before we wrap up. Okay. Uh, I'm just curious from your perspective, like, what do you, what do you see for the future of the exotic car space? And when we think about like the next five years, Right. Like, do you think that the space is going to keep heating up? Like what's going to change? How do you, how do you, how are you kind of forecasting the future here? Yeah. You know, our, our crystal ball is still a little foggy, right? Uh, we're making educated guesses just like everyone else. I do think, and you already have seen it. There's been some consolidation of the market. Um, good, better. Otherwise with the, the cost of capital increasing, uh, the smaller entities I think are, are struggling to pay for floor plan and, you know, it's not lost on us either. Um, Money's expensive, so carrying inventory is uh, is always a burden. It wasn't for the last few years when money was relatively free. Um, so I think you'll see some consolidation. I also think you are, you know, when I started in the business, call it 15 years ago, the average person went to three car dealerships, right? Now it's down to like yeah. one page. So you're seeing a really informed consumer that does a ton of research and that really knows what they want. So in my opinion, having a customer, you know, centric focus on the experience, I think is what's going to 
provide value moving forward. Um, there's a lot less selling going on and, and we're yeah. like consulting, right? Like, hey, Jason, I've got a quarter million dollars to spend. Is it a Turbo S or is it a 488? Or, and, and that's something that I think is unique in our, in our setup. You can kind of come drive all three or four cars in that segment and, and find out what you want. So focusing on the client, um, recognizing there's going to be some consolidation and, and really just focusing on operating a transparent business, I think will be, mm -hmm. um, what drives success, success moving forward. Those are our kind of focuses, right? Are you, are you looking to keep expanding the business regionally or like physical footprint or are you going to cons consolidate more? What are you thinking? You know, we're, we're open to any and all opportunities. Um, right now we're focused on the, the two rooftops we have. Uh, there's a couple, you know, other locations that are top of mind. Uh, but we're, we're trying to just refocus and navigate this market and see what's going to happen. Um, it's been an interesting road over the last year. And, you know, we've seen it in the last two months. Demand is, is coming back. Prices are normalizing. So I'm curious to see what fourth quarter looks like as we roll into, um, you know, an election year and, and how that impacts our business. So, Dude, you're an artist, man. This is good stuff. Well, you definitely, uh, yeah, you're doing something that, not many of us here in the, you know, in the used car game uh, are too in tune with. So it's, uh, it's pretty impressive. And I love your website. Very clean. Very Thank clean. You. Yeah. We tried to make it, um, you know, we took, I guess, influence and an artistic, uh, candor from high-end websites where we like to shop. Right. So, um, we tried to make it easy. There's, there's not a lot of art yeah. there, fluff on there. What you and your partner, like what's the relationship there? Like who does what or like, what are you better at? What is he better at? Yeah. You know, it's been interesting because, um, having a good partner makes all the difference. Right. So there's Chris is a, is a great salesperson. He's wonderful at follow up. Um, he's got a, a tenacity and the, the propensity to follow up for a client with a client for a decade before they buy a car. Um, I'd like to think I'm tenacious. I'm not that tenacious. Um, so his, his strong suit is really on um, the sales side and that he helped and, and had a heavy hand in our marketing, um, especially out of the gate before we brought somebody on our team to do all that. And then, you know, kind of operationally and then on the vehicle acquisition side, that's that's where I focus. Uh, yep. Got it. So you're more the numbers and whatnot and makes sense. Yep, for sure. Not that he's not, but I get it. Yeah. That seems like a good partnership. Well, good stuff. Love to, love to see what you're doing. And, and if anyone wants to learn more about uh, Tactical Fleet yourself, where can they go? Um, Go to our Instagram, which is Tactical Fleet or uh, TacticalFleet.com. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Instagram right now. Actually, it's uh it's good to know. We try to keep the content. Well, <laughs> thanks, Jason, man. It, it, this has been fun. Like I said, we have I haven't uh, delved into exotic cars one out till now, so this has been great learning experience for me as well. Just, truly, like a like sort of like an opaque part of our of our business. So super interesting. For sure. Well, thanks for coming on, man. It's awesome. Talk to you. Good easy. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating, consider subscribing to the show, and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.